Well, right now, on the streets of a very large city in Brazil, there are orphaned children fending for themselves. It's a very hard and dangerous life for these children. Now imagine with me. Through a series of events, you adopt one of these children's children off the streets of Brazil. And he's a seven-year-old boy. His name is Ricardo. And Ricardo now bears your name. He is yours. Legally yours. His situation has dramatically changed. He's been flown up from Brazil. He's living with you. He bears your name. There's been a dramatic change in Ricardo's situation. He's legally yours. Well, you get him home only to realize that your son is behaving very oddly, even badly. He doesn't sleep on the bed you bought him. He sleeps underneath it. And under his bed with him, he hoards food taken from your refrigerator and your cupboards. It grieves you. Your son never looks at you in your eyes. There's something he can't seem to bear when he looks at you. What are you going to do? How do, re- how do you respond to your son? Option one. You threaten him. Ricardo, you better shape up or I'm shipping you back to Brazil. Do you think you'd get a change of behavior? Maybe. But it would not last. Behavioral change by threat doesn't seem to last long. Option number two. It's not threat, it's grace. Ricardo, as you look under the bed, Ricardo, I love you. I love you, son, I love you. I love you, you're mine, son. You bear my name now. You are safe in my house now. Your situation has dramatically changed. You're my son now, boy. I'll provide for you. You just need to trust me. I'll take care of you. You don't have to live this way anymore. It's not true of you anymore. I love you. I love you. I love you. And I will help you. You don't need to fear me, Ricardo. Threat, grace. Which one would you respond to? Grace. God doesn't threaten his children into holiness. God loves his children into holiness. Ours is a holiness by grace, not by threat. God is holy, gloriously set apart in all that he is. He's a consuming fire of moral purity and he is our daddy. Amen to that. 
He loves us beyond measure. His love is a holy love. It's set apart. It's unlike anything else. Unrelenting in His love for us. He's determined with all of His omniscient, omnipotent glory behind Him. He's going to love us. God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to make us holy so that we'd be holy before Him. And then God the Son purchased us with His blood so that we could walk in holiness, so that we could be holy. And then God the Spirit came and dwelt us so that we could have the power to walk in holiness. Our holiness is a triune event. And holiness is beautiful in God's sight. God is committed to our holiness. He will love us into greater and greater degrees of holiness. That's his posture towards us. He loves us and wants us to share in his holiness. His holiness is a good thing. Remember how Ephesians is laid out. Chapters 1 through 3, it's instruction after instruction. This is who you are, Christian. You were uh, called by the Father. You were bought by the Son. You were indwelt by the Spirit. You went from death to life. You've been united to a holy people all by chapter 3, the Gospel. That's how all this came to you. It's by grace you've been saved, not by works. It's God's kindness to you. And then in Ephesians 4 through 6, we read exhortation after exhortation to those who've been made holy by grace. We're exhorted over and over again to live out that holiness in real time. Ephesians is a beautiful book. Ours is a holiness by grace. And we find ourselves in Ephesians 5 this morning, that latter half of the book, exhortation after exhortation. And we're in a passage with several exhortations in it. We're in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And so if you would turn with me there right now, I just want to let you know from up front, Paul is going to exhort us to holiness. God this morning is going to exhort us to holiness, to urge us to be holy. And it's by grace, not by threat. So would you turn there and read with me? Starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or or impure or or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6 Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Some heavy stuff there. 
we've been made holy by grace, saved by grace, set apart by God's grace. We didn't earn that. He did that in us, for us, for his glory. But as holy ones, as saints, we must imitate God, not the sons of disobedience. In this passage, these just six verses, there's actually a progression of thought. There's a logic to the apostles' thinking. And there's three steps to it. There's three stages to it. First, he says, who you are now. The second stage is this, what must not be named among us. And the third step is this, why it must not be named among us. What you're going to see here is that these are not threats in verses 5 and 6, but these are actually appeals to what God has already done for us in Christ. Paul is a master motivator, and he's going to motivate us out of grace, not out of threat. He's appealing to what God has done in you by grace, and so let's now dive in and call to mind as holy ones, we've got to imitate God, not the sons of disobedience. So let's remind ourselves of who we are. So this is uh, who you are now Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. So there are two exhortations in verses 1 and 2. The first is the command to be imitators of God, to be like God. The Greek word that translates into imitator is actually the word we get mimic from. We're to mimic God. We're to be like God in His holiness. Remember, 1 Peter 1.16, be holy for I am holy. We are to be like God. We're to mimic Him. And then he says this. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. I find that interesting. In fact, I kind of found that surprising. I was expecting something more like this. Be imitators of God because you should. Be imitators of God because it's right. And what we're told here is be imitators of God as beloved children. He's pointing to who we are by God's grace. He's pointing to what already God has already done for us through Jesus. He's adopted us as his children. In fact, we are beloved children. He loves us. He wants us to imitate him because he loves us. This morning, he's saying to you, I love you, son. I love you, daughter. Be like me. Paul is motivating us to holiness out of God's love for us, like father, like son. My parents have been staying with us this past week. In fact, they're here with us now this morning. And uh, my wife um, is in Ohio. She's been in Ohio caring for her mom who is, who's dying. And so my parents have come up and have been just a tremendous help. And all throughout this past week, we've been doing a lot of reminiscing and laughing a lot. 
I've been reminded of how much I take after my dad. I mean, we look alike. We talk alike. We work alike. We like the same things, pickup trucks, the sport of lacrosse, getting our hands dirty, the movie Gladiator. We like these things. We even laugh alike, like father, like son. There's genetics involved, of course. But I'm like my dad because I've spent a lot of time with him. I've been in his presence, and there's a reason for that. There's not been one moment in my life that I've questioned my dad's love for me, not once. And here has been the result. I want to be like him. I want to be near him. I want to be like him. How much more our Father in heaven. He has loved us with an eternal love. He set his love on us before the foundation of the world. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans says. And the aim of our Father's love is our holiness so that we can be in his presence without fear. He loves us, and he is committed to loving us into his holiness. This is who you are now, Christian. You are beloved of God, set apart for him, to be imitators of your God, who is your loving father. That is who you are now. Now let's look at verse 2, at the second command. Because to imitate God in holiness means that we take on a specific family trait. Have you ever noticed that some families passed on a distinct nose from generation to generation? Do you ever notice that? Or passed on a distinct laugh or passed on a unique skill set? To be a child of the living God, to be part of his holy family, is to take on a particular family trait. It's called love. You see that in verse 2? And walk in love. It's a command. In light of who we are, beloved children, we are to walk in love. That word walk is all throughout the book of Ephesians. It just simply means to live your life. And the word love, in love, what does it mean to walk in love? Here's what it means. We live our lives governed by love. That's what that means. It, it governs all that we do. And so it begs the question, so what does that look like? And that's exactly where Paul points us to. He points us to Jesus. And walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Do you see it there? That's the kind of love we're supposed to love others with. A love set apart from the rest. A holy kind of love. It's God's family kind of loving. That's the kind of love we're being called to here. Having been loved by God, we are now commanded to love others as Christ has loved us. There's a whole lot of love going on there in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. I would just like to point out two distinctions of this holy Christ-like love. First thing you need to know is this. This love of Christ is 
upward in its aim. At the end of Ephesians 5.2, we read this, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. To God. When you hear those words, fragrant offering and sacrifice, Paul is drawing from the Old Testament, Old Testament sacrifice, Old Testament worship in the temple. And he's saying, this is an act of God. This is an act of worship of God. Our loving others is a way in which we worship God. Christ's loving us to God was worship of God. And now we are to love others the same way. We are to love others to God. That's what we're being told here. God is the goal of our loving others. Another way to say it is this. I want your good, which is God. And I'm going to live my life so that you can experience that. So the first thing, distinction of this love is it's Godward. It's upward, God-aimed. It's worship. The second thing is it's not only upward, it's outward. Upward and outward. It's others-oriented. He loved us. He gave himself up for us. It's others-oriented. He didn't give himself up for himself. He gave himself up for us. It's instructive to us. This is how we're to love. Upward and outward. We're to put others first. We're to love others as God in Christ has loved us. He gave himself up for us. We're talking about Christ's substitutionary death on our behalf. His grace to us. He brought us into the family of God through the substitutionary death of Jesus. What a love is that. So here we are commanded to love because we have been loved by God. And the kind of love with which we're going to love is a Christ-like love, which is upward and outward. So in verses 1 and 2, we're exhorted to be imitators of God by living lives to God in a Christ-like way. It's, it's, it's a picture of everyday holiness. What Paul is saying here, this, this is kind of like the, the blocking and tackling of the Christian faith. This is normal. We love God and we love each other. That, that's what we do. That's what we're called to now. This is normal Christian living. This is the standard by which we live our lives now. And having set the standard, having defined the path that we're to walk, walk in love. In verses 3 and 4, Paul moves on to expose that which is out of bounds. That which is not to be true of us, not to be true of the beloved children of God, not to be true of those who are walking by love. Let's turn there now. What must not be named among us? Chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. We read this. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. So we've just been exhorted to live a particular way because of who we are now. We're beloved of God, therefore we love others, upward and outward. And in verses 3 and 4, he says, this cannot be true. 
this must not even be named among you. In verses 3 and 4, there are two lists of sins, and they're short lists. Verse 3 has a list. Verse 4 has a list. I'm going to just briefly touch on that second list because I want to spend the bulk of my time on the first list. So let me just point you to verse 4 and help you to see that it focuses on speech. Let's read that together. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So ever so brief, did you notice what Paul says about this speech? It's out of place. It's inconsistent with who we are now as Christians. It's not speaking in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. It's inconsistent with holiness. It's not pleasing to God. So this filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking, it's all out of place because these, this is the kind of speech that habitually spoken flows out of a spiritually dead heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if you've got a dead heart, you're going to speak filthy. This kind of speech is out of place because it's not holy. It's unedifying. It's habitual trash talk. And what it's most characteristic is of people who don't know Christ, who have yet to be saved, who have yet to move from death to life. Rather, we're told, what is to mark our speech is thanksgiving. Now that's consistent with someone who's a beloved child of God, an imitator of God, consistent with someone who walks in love. Thankfulness is the overflow of a heart that is grateful to God for all things. Thankfulness reveals a loving heart aimed at God. This is upward and outward kind of speech. Now, let's move back to verse 3 and spend some time here. Verse, verse 3, Paul focuses on three sins, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. And notice the weight Paul gives to it. Feel the exhortation, the degree of it. He says this, these things must not even be named among you. And what he's saying is, they're not to be present in your midst. They're not to be even mentioned because they're not there. That's what he's saying. The New International Version reads this. I love this translation. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's people. They're out of place. It's not who you are. You've got to feel the weight of this. You feel the impact of this. What he's calling us to as a church, these things must not be even named. There must not be sexual immorality among us. There must not be any kind of, of impurity among us. There must not be covetousness, or also known as greed, among us. Can I just tell you something right now? If you're a Christian in the room, God loves you. Your Father loves you. Your Father loves you. And He wants to love you into holiness. Now let's dial into these three sins a little bit more. What are these things that Paul is saying can't be named among us? 
What is sexual immorality? What is this business of impurity? What is covetousness? Let's be clear on what these are. Sexual immorality is the English translation of one Greek word. So two words in English, sexual immorality, for one Greek word. It's the Greek word porneia. It was originally used, that word porneia, very specifically to speak of prostitution. And prostitution, of course, is an illegitimate sex. It is, it is out of bounds. But over time, this is what happened. Porneia began to be used for more and more different kinds of illegitimate sexual practice. And so what porneia eventually became was kind of a catch basin for all illicit sex. Anything that was out of bounds can be called porneia, sexual. So sexual immorality is our English words used to describe all kinds of illegitimate sex, which raises a question. Who says? Who says what is legitimate and illegitimate sexual practice? Who says? See that on the playground between boys playing basketball, trying to figure out the rules. Oh, yeah, who says? Yeah, wah. Who says? Who decides what is sexually permissible and what is sexually impermissible? Is there a universal sexual morality that applies to all people everywhere for all time? Is there? The resounding answer of your Bible is yes. God's word is a clarion call into the confusion of our culture. We've got all sorts of things going around of saying what's appropriate and inappropriate sexually. Before I list for you the different kinds of sexual immorality, I'm not going to be exhaustive. What I want to do first is to help you see God's good provision for all people to experience the good gift of sex. In other words, before we talk about sexual immorality, Let's talk about what sexual morality is. Let's define what is true before, before we time, define what is not, what's right before what's wrong. Let's start here. Sex was God's idea. Sex was part of the good in Genesis chapter 1 on the sixth day. God created Adam and Eve. He brought them together. He said, made them in his image, and he said, go be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And they did. And God says, it was good. It's good. God had created Adam and Eve for a purpose. And he gave them the gift of sex in order to carry out his command to fill the earth. Sex was God's good idea. It is God's good gift to us. And God has provided one and only one context in which this good gift can be enjoyed. And that one place is marriage. Would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13? I'm not sure if you know this is in your Bible, but it's wonderful.
Hebrews 13.4 says says this, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterer. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Marriage is a holy covenant. And what a covenant is, it's a promise that's gone public. And so when someone speaks their vows, they are doing that witnessed by people. It's public. It's a public commitment. It's a covenant. And not just witnessed by humans, witnessed by the living God. Marriage is a holy covenant between one man and one woman for life. God's good gift of sex is to be enjoyed only within the covenant of marriage. So in God's eyes, any sex outside of marriage is illegitimate, it's sinful, it's unholy, it's sexually immoral, it's porneia. And so when we talk about masturbation, we need to think about masturbation in light of this one place God allows for the enjoyment of sex. That's what, how we need to think about it. When we think here about friends hooking up, kind of back in my day, it was friends with benefits. It might be consensual, but if it's outside of marriage, it's still sinful in God's eyes. Adultery is when a married person engages in sex with someone who is not their spouse, someone other than their spouse. It's sinful because it breaks the marriage covenant. One man one woman exclusively committed to each other for life. If a boyfriend and girlfriend are engaging in sex, it's sexually immoral. And it doesn't matter how old they are. They could be teenagers in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Homosexuality is sinful because it's a disregard for God's good design. One man and one woman exclusively committed to each other for life. Even if homosexual marriage is legalized by man, it is still sinful in God's eyes. So what I've been trying to help you see here is what we've got to be clear on. That the sole provision for the enjoyment of this good gift of sex is marriage. That's the key to this whole culture debate over what is sexually permissible and not. Anything outside of the bounds of marriage is sexual immorality. And it must not even be named among us. Why? At the very heart of sexual immorality is selfishness. Sexual immorality is sexual selfishness. It's the very opposite of what we're commanded to in Ephesians 5.2. Walk in love. Remember, love is upward and outward. God aimed and other-oriented. Sexual immorality is downward. It's a disregard for God's design. It's disobedience. And oftentimes it's inward, self-oriented. Sexual immorality is unloving and disobedience and it must not be even named 
among us. How y'all doing? Impurity. The word impurity is used ten times in the New Testament. Nine by Paul. And typically when it's used, it's used kind of partnered with other words like sexual immorality and sensuality. And so typically it has sexual overtones to it. But if you notice, Paul qualifies it. He says all impurity. Every kind of impurity. And so what Paul has in mind here is something a little bit larger, grander than just sexual impurity. Other places where Paul uses this word outside of kind of a sexual context, it's talking about sinful motives. And I think that's what he's getting at here. So let's just call this habitual selfishness. It's a general and pervasive selfishness that affects everything. Anybody seen Finding Nemo? Sydney Harbor? Seagulls? Mine, mine, mine. Mine, mine. Have you heard of deism? Have you heard of theism? What we're talking about here is me-ism. It's all about me. Me, me, me. That's our culture. That's where we're living. And that's what God has called us out of. It's in direct opposite of what God calls us to in Ephesians 5.2. The love with which we've been called to is upward and outward. Impurity must not even be named among us. Covetousness, also known as greed. Sexual immorality is habitual sexual selfishness. Impurity is a habitual me-ism. Covetousness, greed, is material selfishness. Did you notice that in verse 5, Paul calls this Greed by another name? Idolatry. Idolatry is living for something other than the one true God, and it's a capital offense in God's eyes. And what Paul is saying is that habitual greed is the worship of a false God, and it must not even be named among us. I read this a couple weeks ago in my devotions out of Luke Jesus warns us, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Covetousness is idolatry because it believes one's possessions give life to the full. Remember Jesus, John 10, 10, I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. Here's what the covetous person believes. My next purchase will give me life and life in full. Does it? No. The reality is that this kind of living only leads to ruin and death. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Christ is our life, not money, not possessions. They cannot give us what we need most. 
Covetousness is the very opposite of what God exhorts us to in Ephesians 5.1. It's, it's not being imitators of God. It's not walking in love. God doesn't live for money. God exists for His own glory, and so must we exist for His glory. Greed is not walking in love. It's walking in selfishness, material selfishness. You can't look, serve both God and money, Jesus says, but you can serve God with your money. When it comes to money and possessions, to walk in love is to be generous. To give wisely. To steward money and possessions for the God-glorifying good of others. And sometimes that means going without. To bless someone else for God's glory. And these are heavy stuff, isn't it? It's not to be even named among us. That's a high standard. That's a holy standard. That's a good standard. We live in a culture that's just inundated with these things. And God has called us out of it. We once were this way, but no longer. Let's look at why these things must not be named among us. Uh, there are two reasons in Ephesians 5, 5 and 6. Um, there's a, actually another reason given a little earlier in verse 3. It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. You get the logic? It's not who you are. This stuff must not be named among you because you've been changed. You're a beloved child of the living God. You're to walk in love and this is inconsistent with that. But notice verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, covetous and idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. That might put a lump in your throat. That might make you wonder, oh man, am I okay? Paul is describing people who are habitually unrepentant and sinning. Unrepentant and habitual sexually immoral, the unrepentant and habitually impure, the unrepentant and habitually covetousness. Paul is not talking about Christians. He's talking about those who are not Christians, those who do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He says, you can see it in the way he, he describes it, for you may be sure of this, that those who habitually practice sin have no inheritance. So why is he saying this? It's not a threat. It's a sober reminder. Those who have yet to be saved by God's grace live a certain way. We've been saved by God's grace we have an inheritance from Jesus. Ephesians 1, 14 and 18. So here's the logic. And let me put it in the form of a question. Christian, holy one, why would you engage in things that non-Christians live for? Why would you do that? It's not who you are. By God's grace, you've been radically changed. 
This is no longer true of you. Therefore, these things should not even be named among you. It's not who you are anymore. The next reason I want, I want you to see is in verse 6. It's similar rationale. Verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What Paul is saying is this. Don't be deceived in thinking that there is no wrath of God. There is. It's a prevalent lie in our day. People don't like to think that God is full of wrath towards sinners. And the question isn't, how do you feel about it? The question is, is it true or not? And God's word is clear. God's wrath is real and hanging over the heads of those who have yet to believe. John 3, 36. So here's Paul's rationale. This is not a threat, but here's the rationale. Sexual immorality, all impurity and greed are the very things that have caused the wrath of God to come upon the sons of disobedience. But you're no longer a son of disobedience. You're a beloved child of the living God. God's wrath for you was poured out on Christ. You've been forgiven and you've been made righteous in God's sight with Christ's righteousness. And now you're to be an imitator of God, His beloved child. These things are not to be named among us because it's not who we are anymore. We're not sons of disobedience under God's wrath. We're children of God under His grace. He loves us. So let me conclude by saying this. Paul's not motivating us here to, you know, get this stuff away from us because he's threatening us. Paul is motivating us to holiness by grace. Remember who you are. Remember what God has done for you in Christ. By God's grace, you've been made holy. So imitate your holy Father and walk in love and steer clear of all this selfishness that's true of the sons of disobedience. You've been saved by grace to walk in holiness. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for what you've done for us. Thank you for saving us from our sin and saving us to holiness. And God, I do pray that you would, God, sanctify us as a church, that you would remove sexual immorality from our midst, that you would remove impurity, that you would remove greed for your glory and for our good, for your honor and for what is right. God, thank you for reminding us this morning that you love us. That's what we take to heart. In Jesus' name, amen.